chapter 11. In verse 24, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due but results only in want. Um, I guess I could pause for a moment and call this little word to your attention that um, we're going to take a little Christmas break. Uh, attendance through the years has kind of veered off as we get closer to Christmas anyway. So uh, we figure maybe a break is good. And so we decided this year to take the break in conjunction with uh, the ladies' class break. And uh, so this is our last class for 1983, and we'll be back on the 11th of January, and that'll give you a month to uh, sleep in on Wednesday morning. Don't get used to it, though. <laughs> it's always a problem to do that, you know. I, I worked with a guy in, uh, in Spokane who was one of these characters who always had something going. It didn't matter what it was, whether it was important or not. He had to keep something going. And I asked him one time, why do we have so much useless activity? And he says, look, he says, if you give people a chance to sit down and rest, they'll figure out how tired they are, and they, they'll, uh, they won't come to anything. So he says, you keep them busy, and they'll never know. <laughs> so uh, we lost most of the congregation, buried them. But uh, no. <laughs> Last week, I was uh, kind of got off the track a little bit in trying to illustrate the fact that the Lord's going to take care of you. And uh, in the process, I, uh, I uh, told you about my parents and uh, some of the things that happened in terms of, of uh, them showing hospitality even when they didn't have much. And, so on and so forth. Little did I suspect that we'd get a letter this week. I'm going to share the letter with you. I think you'll enjoy it. Probably get a good laugh over it, but part of it anyway. But uh, it was fascinating to me because we had, um, when Bird Brunemeyer was killed in Saipan, uh, we as a church got behind the project out there, and as we have been, and uh, um, gathered together some memorial funds and so on. And um, so uh, FEBC, Far East Broadcasting Company, uh, wrote us a real nice letter just thanking us for the uh, help that, that we had been and uh, all that had been done and uh, um, so on. And it was signed by um, a Willem A. Greer, all right? In the letter was a note. And the letter wasn't written to me, it was written attention uh, Mrs. Efting because uh, Vivian had been the person that had corresponded with them about our part in the ministry in Saipan. And so in this note, it says, Mrs. Efting, I just want to include this little note from me personally. For some time, I have known that Paul Steele is pastor there, but I've never had the privilege of attending his church. In 1954, that's a little while ago, 1954. Following the death of my husband, I took my four children to Prairie Bible Institute in Three Hills, Alberta, Canada, and entered them in grade school. En route to Canada, 
from Monterey, California. I drove my car and was accompanied on the trip by Bob and Nita Snyder. He was then the director of the music department, that is, at Prairie. In Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, we stayed overnight on the weekend in Paul's parents' home. I re you'll love this. I remember Paul, a young, reddish, blonde teenager. <laughs> His mother was a lovely woman and coped marvelously with these two families. While Bob Snyder was involved in meetings, uh, which his parents had arranged, I shall never forget Mrs. Steele's gracious hospi hospitable spirit and her efficiency in managing that entire weekend. She was active in Prairie's outreach, too, and we met at Prairie several times after that. Paul's sister, Betty, also a very lovely girl, taught my daughter piano a few years later. I don't know if Paul will remember the occasion, but it would be interesting to know if his mother is still living and where his sister is now. My children are between 35 and 40 years old now, and my son Jim is married and working at Rayathon uh, in the engineering area. My son Stan is director of programming at KSAI and worked with Bird Brunemeyer there in our station on Saipan. Now, that's, it's just fascinating to me to, after, you know, all of these years, 30 years, to uh, receive a letter like that and realize what a blessing that really was. Um, scripture tells us that one of the qualifications for leadership is that we be given to hospitality. And um, in, in, in our selfish age, uh, Christians have tried to substitute other things for that. And a lot of times we say, well, you know, I can't, we can't afford to have people come in off, you know, driving through and stop in, you know. We can't afford that. And uh, we, we substitute a lot of other activity uh, for, for the genuine, warm hospitality. You talk about southern hospitality, but very seldom do we see much in the way of real hospitality anywhere in our country today. People just opening their homes. And the word hospitable in the Greek is a, uh, a word that's translated hospitable in the Greek is a word that means a fondness of strangers, a love for strangers. And most people today uh, have enough trouble uh, being hospitable to their friends, let alone to total strangers. And uh, yet a lot of it, a lot of times, it's, it's, a, it's an economic thing. You know, we just can't afford it. We can afford a big house and a big car and all of those things, but we can't afford to, to spot somebody at church who we've never met, introduce yourself to them, get to know them briefly, and say, why don't you come home for lunch? Now, that kind of thing is almost unheard of. Whereas it used to be years ago, it was very common, especially for Christians. I suppose the fact that the football game is on in the afternoon might hinder too, I don't know. But, you know, it's very difficult for people to get the vision of that sort of thing. And I think that, that uh, we need to learn that aspect of Christian stewardship as well. I just thought maybe you'd enjoy hearing that little sequel after all the way I uh, talked at you last week. Now let's go to, to uh, Proverbs 11 and verse 24 and uh, talk a little bit about this matter of scattering and increasing and withholding and resulting in want. Now, the very first thing we encounter in this verse is an adverb, the word sham, 
in the Hebrew. Sham is an adverb that means there. It has a locative force. It means in this place. And in this particular case, it's used in this poetic sense. In this place means anywhere. Uh, any place you are, any place there is a person uh, who understands a principle of farming, then there is the individual who scatters and has increase. The idea of one who scatters, uh, the word scatter is P-A-Z-A-R, pazar, it means to disperse like seed. Of course, in those days, uh, they disperse seed by what we call broadcasting or uh, just uh, taking the seed in your hand, actually, uh, they, they wore on the uh, kind of like a, a newspaper, kind of like a newspaper bag. Uh, they, they wore over uh, their shoulder a seed bag on their left side so they could reach in with their right hand and as they pulled their hand from the bag they would scatter the seed and bring their hand back and uh, with the least possible motion would scatter the seed row by row. And uh, so the idea is the, uh, the, the pr principle of farming and, and so very common in that day. Today, of course, we're very efficient with our, our cedars and uh, all of that. And, but we, uh, in that day, would just broadcast the seed. Uh, the thing that, that um, you have to read into this culturally is the fact that the, the, the scattering of seed uh, involved risk, um, even more so than the farmer today. Anybody that plants a crop has a certain amount of risk. There can be flood, there can be drought. Uh, a lot of things can happen that would ruin your crop. You take that money and you invest it in seed, or as was generally the case, you would, you would save uh, the seed from the year's previous crop. And uh, you would keep that in a special granary, and uh, then you would take it from the granary and begin to distribute it as soon as the soil was prepared. But in those days, uh, as the parable of the Lord Jesus Christ has given, uh, some would fall on the wayside, some might fall on stony ground, some might fall on thorny ground, and some would, would fall on good ground. Uh, the principle of the farmer was that hopefully enough would fall on good ground that there would be uh, there would be an increase rather than a decrease. And uh, therefore, the farmer would carefully prepare the soil and do all of the things necessary so that as he's scattering the seed, a majority of the seed would fall on good ground. But you understand that, that with that kind of risk and all of the risks of farming, uh, every farmer was, a, was and still is today a gambler of sorts. There's a risk involved. And what this text is, is, is teaching our principles of giving. And it's telling, in essence, that we are to take risks. We're not to take risks to get rich. We're, take, we're to take risks as a matter of course, because that is our business. We are, in that sense, farmers sowing seed. And some of that that we sow, that is some of that that we give to the Lord's work, no matter how careful we are, is going to be wasted. We'll give to a missionary who washes out, and we'll give to uh, we'll give to a church organization that that folds, or to a project that proves to be abortive, and uh, we'll find that that some of that that we 
that we, we send forth, some of that that we give, is not as productive as we want it to be. But we're still to risk it. And we're, we're to do it, and we're to do it gladly, and we're to do it happily. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is the Greek word from which we get the word hilarious. The Lord loves a hilarious giver. Someone who enjoys just the, the giving, just because he knows he's giving to God. And one of the things that we know is that even though we may give to the poor, and the poor may squander it, nevertheless, he that gives to the poor lends to the Lord. And the Lord keeps that on account. And as we've said so very often, you can't outgive God. But the, the principle behind this is that, that sowing, risking what you have, investing what you have in something that, that could never offer direct financial returns. Every time you give to the Lord, you know, you, you, you don't expect the church to take that money and invest it in a project and then pay you back. I know that there, there was a church up in Oakland uh, a few years back uh, where the people were investing in this church because the pastor there had promised that they would receive a hundredfold uh, in a very, very short time. Strange thing. He had a yacht, he had a Rolls Royce, all of this, and nobody ever got their 100% return. He invested in the wrong things, you see, and uh, so the people couldn't get their, couldn't get their money back, and finally the, the law uh, put out its long arm, and uh, he's in jail now uh, because the whole thing was a front and a fraud. So you, you risk what you're, what you're sowing, but at the same time, the, the record shows that such an ind individual increases yet the more. A word, yasath. Yasath is used 200 times in the Old Testament. It means to add. It actually, actually, um, you hear, you hear any, a familiar ring to yasath? Yasath is the Hebrew word that has been carried over into the English for translation purposes, Joseph. Joseph. Remember when Joseph was born? Uh, it, it was that uh, his his mother Rachel um, said, um, "Because the Lord has added to me, the Lord has increased, the Lord has augmented." That's the that's the meaning of the word Joseph. Uh, commonly, the word uh, can be translated to repeat or to do again. Uh, in, in Genesis, um, just show you this one, Genesis chapter 4 and verse 2, it says, um, after Cain has been born, in verse 1, it says, and again, there's the word, Yasaf, and again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, and Cain is a tiller of the ground. So it literally means to add. If you look with me at uh, Leviticus 27, Leviticus 27, look at verse 13. But if you should ever wish to redeem it, this is talking about the, the offering, if you should ever wish to redeem it, 
then he shall add, there's our word, he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. Look in verse 15. Yet if one who consecrates it should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may be his. Verse 19. And if one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it so that it may pass to it. Verse 27. Verse 27. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your value and add to it one-fifth of it. If it's not redeemed, then it shall be sold according to the value. Now that's the, the word, yasaf. You're going to add to it. Um, over in Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9, verse 34. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned again, or he added to his sin. Yasaf, he added to his sin and hardened his heart, and he called his servants, and uh, he and his servants and his, his heart was hardened and he wouldn't let the people go. That's the idea there. So he add to, to his sin. Over in Psalm 71, Psalm 71, <coughs> verse 14, But as for me, I will hope continually and will praise thee yet Yasaf, Yasaf, more and more. I'll add to my praise and then add to my praise again. Over in Isaiah, chapter 38. Isaiah 38. And verse 5. <clears throat> Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will yasaf 15 years to your life. Now that's the principle. You sow and God adds. You sow and God adds. I repeat, God doesn't always pay in kind. That is, you give him $10, it doesn't mean he gives you back $20. But God has marvelous ways of adding. He's very, very creative. And you will not, he will be no man's debtor. Ultimately, the Lord is able to pay back and to add to. Now, this principle is nothing uh, unfamiliar to us if we know God's word at all. There are many verses that are based upon this concept. Let's look at a few. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Keeping in mind that God does not always pay back in kind, it tells us in Luke 6, 38, give, and it will be given to you. And notice how God gives back. Good measure... Press down. <laughs> you understand press down, don't you? 
Um, when you're baking a cake and you have a recipe that tells you to sift the flour into a container, uh, that determines then the, the weight of the flour determining how much it's packed down. But on the other hand, when you add the brown sugar, it tells you a cup of brown sugar firmly packed. If you just pour the brown sugar into a cup, you're liable to get about a, a half a cup just because of the way the brown sugar is granulated. And so therefore, it tells you firmly packed. It, if you want something full with no air holes in between, then you want it firmly packed. Um, I uh, don't know a whole lot about a lot of things, but one thing I know about is ice cream. <laughs> I spent uh, uh, seven of my best years making ice cream in a creamery. And um, I uh, have, to, have to tell you, you've got to watch out for ice cream. There's a little adjustment on the ice cream machine that adds air. And when you get that you know, 69 cent a half gallon ice cream. That's awful expensive for air, because that's all you're getting. You can add so much air that the box looks full, but in actual weight, it hardly weighs any, anything more than the carton. And uh, you wonder why some ice cream tastes better than, other, than others. Generally, it's the amount of air they put in. What we did in the creamery was we closed that little valve about lunchtime and all took our portion for lunch and uh, then opened it up for the customers. They <laughs> it was amazing how you could, you could get uh, out of a vat of, uh, of mix, you could get an awful lot of ice cream just by adding air. And the customer, of course, uh, by and large, doesn't know a whole lot of difference. And at, my, at, at the time I was doing it, it was a fairly new innovation. They had made, they made, air has to be added to ice cream to some degree. Anyway, that's what gives us its substance. Uh, otherwise, it would be like, um, like an ice cube. If you just uh, froze the milk, it'd be like an ice cube. So you've got to add some air. But uh, the idea of adding, uh, being able to adjust it was something that was fairly new at the time that uh, I was making ice cream. We had a lot of fun with that see how many gallons you get out of a vat, you know, and, and uh, all of this. But uh, one of the things you didn't want to do, by the way, is, is uh, let the ice cream melt a little bit, because when it froze again, there was nothing left in the carton. <laughs> and so you had to make sure it was frozen very quickly when it was that light. But uh, God doesn't give back that way. He doesn't add any air to it. He packs it down. Uh, you can be sure you're getting a, a full supply of the product when God measures. And you may give a cup full. And you may have a lot of air in what you give. But when God returns to you, he packs it down. It's firm and it's packed and it's shaken together. And it's running over. Gives even the overflow. They will pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, can you understand that, that, there, that this, is a, this is a principle of giving? The principle is this. When, God, when, you, when you bring your container, 
with what you're going to give to God, God then uses the same container to return to you. Now, he packs it down, and he allows it to run over, but it's the same container. Therefore, if you've got a big container filled with what you're giving to God, you can be certain that the blessing that will be returned to you will be, will be that plus. But if you've given a little dinky container, and God doesn't deal in terms of the actual dollars and cents, he deals in terms of what you give as compared to what you could give. And that's proved by the story of the widow's mite. Somewhere here in the back of my Bible, I've got a little thing. Give me a second. Let me see if I can find it. Maybe I can't. It's here if I had time to look through the whole thing. It tells us, here it is, it is estimated, it is estimated that if the widow's mite had been deposited at the First National Bank Jerusalem to draw 4% interest semi-annually, the fund today would total, get this, 4, 8, then 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 zeros. I don't know what that figure is. I never had that much. <laughs> Pardon me? No, 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 dollars. In dollars. All right? 48, 48 or 4 quadrillion or whatever, 800, it'll be more than a trillion because the first set of threes would be hundreds, thousands. 4.8 times 10.1. Yeah, you got it. 4.8. All right, you got it. If a, bank, if a bank on earth could multiply the widow's might to such an astronomical figure, think what treasures this dedicated woman will have in heaven where moth and rust doth not corrupt. Now you think about that for a moment. Christ said concerning her, she gave all that she had. And probably one of the wealthiest women in heaven is going to be that widow. She gave all that she had. But when you come with your little cup and say, well, this is all that I can, all that I can give, just remember the Lord's going to use the same cup to measure back to you in terms of blessing. People ask sometimes, should I, should I give based on my net or my gross? The question is, do you want God's blessing on the net or the gross? That's the question. See, a long time ago there was a, there was a man who was a millionaire and he was in a in a congregation of people and uh, was very generous with his money. And in this particular case, after the regular offering had been taken, there was a need mentioned on the mission field and they had decided to take a second offering in the service. And um, this millionaire who had given his usual 
large check in the first offering, was upset. He didn't like the idea of anybody giving a a, um, a missionary, I mean, having a special offering, another offering. And so when the plate was passed to him, he with great disdain in such a way so everybody around him could see it, took a penny out of his pocket and threw the penny in the offering plate. When they counted the money, they had exactly to the penny what they needed with one extra penny left over. Some smart Alec Usher took the penny, put a big sign on the bulletin board and said, the penny God couldn't use. The reason he couldn't use it was not because God can't use a penny. God can use a widow's mite. But because of the attitude of the individual. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And if your attitude is wrong, you know, I, I, I don't hesitate to say this. If you cannot joyfully and happily give to the Lord, don't give. Because if you give, it's, it's, it's really, it can't attend the Lord's blessing to it anyway. Your heart has to be right. God doesn't want the funds of an unbeliever. He doesn't want the funds of a carnal believer. He doesn't want the funds of a griping believer. God can build his work on the basis of people who, out of the joy of their heart, bring their gifts to God and who risk what they have simply because they believe that the blessing of the Lord it maketh rich and addeth no sorrow with it. Over in Galatians chapter 6 in verse 6 it says and let the one who is taught the word share all good things with him that teaches. I've got a number of pastor friends who claim that that's their life verse. <laughs> when you teach the Word, you are to be paid for it. The people who are taught are to give in return. And that's something, you know, that, that I can uh, speak about without batting an eye here at Valley Church because Valley Church is very faithful in this regard. And so I don't have to stand up here and feel as though maybe I'm hinting that uh, you ought to give me more or something like that because everybody knows you don't have to do that. But it's a principle. Now, it's on the basis of that principle that we have the next verse. I, I, sometimes you'll read a, uh, um, a writer who will, who will say you can't use the... Um, verses 7 and 8 of Galatians 6 in a general way uh, because uh, it's talking about pay paying the preacher and only paying the preacher. Uh, you've got to realize that the Apostle Paul uses it in a general way because he says, whatsoever a man sows. So therefore it takes it beyond this. But the primary application of be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap for the one that sows to his own flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. That principle is tied into the idea primarily of giving. And though it can be applied 
to any sowing and reaping process because the principle is, is made much more general than that here. Nevertheless, its primary context has to do with giving to the local church for the purpose and support of the work of God. And it uses the same principle as Proverbs 11:24, in that it's a matter of sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, this will he also reap. The one who sows to his own flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. The one that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. In case that bothers you, verse 9 says, And let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially to those of the household of faith, and in context, especially as a preacher. All right? So the idea, again, is this sowing and reaping. God telling us that when you sow, you will reap again. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and verse 15, as it is written, he who gathers much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. Again, it's the idea of gathering the uh, uh, manna in this particular case so that the individual God supplied. It says in verse 14, at this present time, your abundance being a supply for their want and their abundance that their abundance also may become a supply for your want, that there may be quality. As is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little had no lack. In other words, it was a principle that was, that was involved in sharing um, that was, it was very common among the Jews in the agricultural uh, manner that they had for a fel the fellow who had the poor crop the, the fellow who had the good crop uh, just over the hill that, you know, the, the grasshoppers didn't get his crop. The grasshoppers got the crop of the first man, and so he had little crop. And the other fellow didn't have that disaster happen. So the fellow over the hill with the good crop would share with the other fellow so that both of them could survive. Uh, this happens once in a while in communities even today. There have been a number of times in time of drought and particularly around the Depression time in the Dust Bowl in the Midwest, where a man would, would receive uh, uh, a little better crop than the other fellow, so he had a little bit more, and he would turn around and, and help support the guy over the hill. And those kinds of things went on uh, all the way through the Depression to some degree. Sometimes there was the selfish farmer who refused to do that, and merely hoarded what he had, but more often there were there was a lot of real concern for one another. Some of you fellows with a gray hair or two, some of you and your families may have been the recipients of such uh, kind help. But the the idea of being charitable was much more in uh, in vogue. Now we just uh, give it the office, you know, uh, to the United Way. We don't think too much about it. But in those days, it was a very direct reciprocation. And what God, what God wants us to do when he has blessed us, he wants us then to be available, to be used of him, to share with those who lack. 
Just a principle again of giving. All right, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 then goes on and talks there about giving. It says in verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Same thing as Proverbs 11.24. Let each one do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For the Lord loves a cheerful giver, not grudgingly, not under compulsion. Those are two wrong ways to give. I'll tell you something, and I, I'm going to say this, and um, I hope that it'll stick, all right? The next time you're in a service and the need is presented and God lays it on your heart to give, give. That's correct. But when you go to a service and the guy presents the need and then puts the screws on you, and starts begging, and starts coercing, and starts twisting your arm, and using all kinds of fleshly trickery. Put your money back in your pocket and give it to somebody else. All right? Now, see, that does two things. First of all, it saves you from giving in a non-biblical way. Secondly, it puts me on the spot so I don't dare ever try to squeeze you. All right? And I'd just as soon be in that position because I believe that if I ever stand up and start twisting arms and begging people and, and figuring out neat little methods to get their money, that I'm carnal and I have no business being a pastor. It's a very, very serious thing. We have found out in this day that people do respond to pressure. It's unfortunate. It's because so many people refuse to think of it biblically. So they, they, they do respond to pressure. But I, for one, refuse. If they have to cut my salary and have to cut uh, the missionary budget and cut the building fund and cut this and cut that, so be it. But there is no way, there is no way I'm going to coerce my people into giving one thin dime. And when you have to use manipulative methods to get people to give, you have stepped outside the area of God's permission in regard to giving. First of all, when you pressure people, they're more likely to give grudgingly. And it's certain that they are giving because of the pressure. And that's the, the, the difference is, is immense. I would far rather have the money delayed than have to twist somebody's arm to get it. Let God tell them what to give. It's not my business to tell people what to give. It's my business to present need on occasion, tell you what things are happening, and to keep you informed. I don't even like to do that, to be frank with you. There are times where I wish I had the faith of George Mueller. Mueller and, uh, Mueller and Moody used to have a real tussle because D.L. Moody, Moody uh, believed in, in 
in his campaign telling people how much financial need was was there. I mean, he he didn't hesitate on that at all. Uh, with uh, good old uh, what's his name Mueller, <laughs> I couldn't think of his name for a moment. Uh, with George Mueller, George Mueller believed that you only tell God, right? And Moody cornered Mueller one time and said, uh, Mueller, I understand that when you need something, you only ask God. And he said, that's right. He said, if I asked you what you needed, would you tell me? And uh, Mueller said, well, yes. Moody said, so what's the difference? <laughs> but in actual fact, Mueller seldom told people what the need was. And very few people were aware when they gave that there was a real need, and usually it was an emergency type thing. He had orphans to feed, but he didn't uh, dun people for money. He didn't even have a united way. He just went to his knees and believed God for the funds, and people would have the Lord speak to their heart, and then they would give accordingly, and the needs were met. He was a tremendous man of prayer. Well, I don't necessarily say it's always wrong to, to let people know what the needs are. But I'll tell you this, Mueller's way is a whole lot better. Because what you're doing is linking up need with a willing heart who is sensitive to God's voice. I think what's happened, you want me to be frank with you, what's happened in the average church, the average person is so out of touch with God that he doesn't know what God is telling him to do. And when you've got a condition like that, if you're going to get a dime out of that guy, you've got to milk him for it. And so men have resorted to a carnal method to get money out of carnal people so that they give grudgingly and give under compulsion, and they violate Scripture. And I often wonder when a guy is preaching through 2 Corinthians and he comes to that verse, how in the world he could preach it, knowing what he did 10 minutes earlier when he took the offering. Quite a thing, isn't it? All right. So let each one do as he's purposed in his heart, between you and God, not grudgingly, not under compulsion, for the Lord loves a hilarious giver. And here's the promise now. And God is able to make all grace abound to you that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness abides forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice it's not a harvest of money, it's a harvest of righteousness. What he said here is, God gives you all these things, all that you need for all that you're going to do so that you can do good work. He's going to give you the ability to do more when you are willing to be sensitive to him and to purpose in your heart to give. And it says you will be enriched in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God and for the ministry of this service is not only the full supplying of the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God, and so on. So, that's a, a tremendous passage on giving. Don't ever 
let anybody put you under the law. Don't ever let anybody put you under the law. If somebody really wants to be under the law, all right, then let's get it straight what the tithe is in the Old Testament. There are three of them. Amount about 30% of your income. If a person was a tither, <laughs> I left holding the bag here. If a person was a tither, then that person gave about 30% of his income to God. And it was, in Israel, income tax. It was income tax. That's all it was. Based entirely on in income. It was fair. It was equitable. And it supported the nation, not only the Lord's work, but other areas. It was not strictly a spiritual thing given to God so that it could be used to spread uh, Judaism around the world. So that it's an entirely different thing. Even Abraham, who gave before the law, gave to Melchizedek. Anybody know what? Tithes, plural, of all he possessed. Now we're not told how many tithes, but it is plural. So therefore, he gave not only a tithe, and he only did it once, so it, it couldn't have been, uh, it couldn't have been uh, that he gave a tithe one year and another tithe the next year and another tithe the next year. Couldn't be. He gave tithes and only did it once. So he gave at least 20%, because the tithe is 10%. And see, everybody's hung up on that 10% business. I say to you, give nine and three quarters or give ten and a quarter, but don't zero in on the ten, okay? If you want to give twenty, if you want to give five, if you want to give four, it's between you and God, okay? Now, personally, I'm convinced that a, that a tithe is a good place to start. It's a, it's a, it's a rule of thumb type thing. It kind of helps you. It's easy to figure and all of those things. There's nothing wrong with giving a tithe and then a little more as long as, as you're not doing it in a legalistic sense because I have to. I hear this so often. The tithe belongs to God. Ooh, be careful of that. Remember, tithes in Israel did belong to God, 30%. You gave on the, you gave on the uh, a gross income right off the top, the first fruits, 10%. You gave on the net income, which was a little bit less, after the tithe was taken out, after uh, some of the expenses were paid, and so on. Then you gave another tithe. And then there was a third tithe. And then there was a temple tax. And then and above that, God asked for offerings. Right? And that was the nation of Israel. That was their giving program. God's giving program is what I just read. You purpose in your heart to give to God. And there is no indication, no hint in the New Testament, not even a hint in the epistles, that one should give a set amount. You are to give proportionately as God has blessed you. God gives to you, you give to God, God gives you blessing. But the idea of a percentage is something that People that want to put you under a law are going to ask for it. Be very, very careful of that. Now, I, I know there's some awfully good men who preach tithing. And I often ask them, why don't you preach the whole thing then? And they, well, the people never go for that. 
But are you are you determining what Scripture says on the basis of what people are going to re- how people are going to respond, or according to truth? You say that the tithe is for today. You can't prove that with the New Testament. But if you're going to prove it with the Old Testament, at least tell the whole story, which is thirty percent, not ten percent. All right. So first place, unless you're prepared to get thirty, don't let anybody put you under the law. You shouldn't let anybody put you under the law anyway. All right. Let's look at Psalm 112. Psalm 112. Verse 9. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. That word, to freely, is from the same root as the word to scatter. He that scatters, azar. He that given freely, he has scattered freely to the poor. Over in John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And verse 24. Truly, truly, I say unto you, except a, or unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world shall keep it to life eternal. Now, the principle that that God wants us to get through our head in this verse and in all of the principles of giving is that your money basically does you no good for eternity when it sits in the barn. You've got to put your money to use. Now, anybody understands this. Um, most of us have a little money in a savings account somewhere. Uh, some probably trying to get it up to the place that, that makes it worthwhile to put it in a, a, a fund that's going to give you greater interest. But it's only a, it only makes business sense when you've got a surplus of money to try to put that into some kind of an investment that is going to give you a better return, right? And it just, it just makes a lot of business sense. That's harder for some than it is for others, but the idea is that all of us have in mind that that's the kind of thing that we ought to do. Now, in the spiritual realm, the same principle applies. And the principle is a very simple one. You invest in the Lord's work and you're laying up treasure in heaven. And as you lay up treasure in heaven, God reciprocates with blessing upon your life in numerous ways, not the least of which is the fact that there is produced through you, as you willingly give biblical way to God, produced through you divine good or divine righteousness. It's the righteousness of God reproduced in your life. That in itself is its own reward. 
you start looking at the number of blessings there are for the person who God has declared righteous. And the righteousness of God is manifest in a practical way as you invest your funds in the Lord's work. When you are willing to give that way, then God says you can't lose. Now, on this earth, he may not give you in kind, as I said, but you can't lose because there's an eternal benefit. It's on that basis and the whole basis of giving that God says go all the way. Give him all, everything you have. Give him you. Paul the Apostle, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he told them, he said, I want to commend to you the conduct of the people in Macedonia, the people in the church in Philippi. He says they didn't give as one might expect. That is, reach in their pocketbook and give because there was a need. But rather, they gave first of all themselves to the Lord and then of their funds. They gave themselves to the Lord. You see, we've got to get to the place to where we realize that in the nation of Israel, God dealt with those people on the basis of earthly rewards. They had an earthly kingdom that they were looking forward to, an earthly reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything was bound in the fact that God had promised to Abraham a literal piece of real estate in a literal world. Okay? And therefore, much of what they had in the Old Testament had to do with trading in kind. But in the New Testament, we've got far more at stake because we don't, we're not citizens here. Therefore, you know, a citizen plants a crop. The stranger just passing through doesn't plant the crop. He plants the crop in his real home. And God wants us to come to the place where we realize that the real world is the world to come. That's where it's really at. And therefore, we should feel free to scatter abroad here, to, to spread here so that the gospel can go forth because every dime we invest in the Lord's work is going to have eternal dividends. I'm afraid that a lot of people are going to be disappointed when they get to heaven because there's going to be a bonfire in heaven. Wood, hay, and stubble is going to be burned and the only thing that will remain is the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. And we have to learn this because we want to hold lightly to the things that we have here on this earth because they are perishable and we want to invest in the permanent. Well, we'll talk a little more about this next week. No, not next week. How about the 11th of January, all right? And uh, meanwhile, have, a, have an extra special good Christmas, all right? And uh, during these days, keep in mind those that, that have needs, all right? All around us are people these days who we might be able to maybe even open your home on a Thanksgiving day, I mean a Christmas day, and invite somebody in to just share your meal with you. You're probably going to have too much anyway, right? So you share it. Thank you, Father, for what you've done.
in our hearts and lives, we thank you for your word. Help us, Lord, to learn how to scatter, how to do it properly. And help us, Lord, to enjoy the, the reaping and the taking of the harvest. Get excited about that. Not so much because we've received again, but that we've received so we can give again. Help us to learn to do that. And we'll praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.